as we'll go through uh, this passage of Scripture this morning, uh, we want to not just read and see um, Isaiah 6, but we want to experience it together as a congregation. And so um, a lot of what's going on here in this passage is revelation and response, revelation and response. God reveals himself um, and creation responds. And so basically after the word is preached, we're just going to respond. Uh, we're just going to respond in worship. We're going to respond to all that God is, all that God has done for us. And so um, who knows what God will do? And um, why don't we pray and ask the Lord to meet with us during this time. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord, that your word does not return void. And so um, we, uh, we just want to hear from you, God. So Lord, would you, would you just clear away um, the fog, Lord? Would you remove every obstacle so that we can see you, God? We want to see you. We want to behold your glory, your greatness, who you are, Lord, and we want to have a fresh encounter with you, God. So, Lord, would you send your Holy Spirit this morning to meet with us? Would you come and invade this place with your presence and with your kingdom's power? And, uh, Lord, we ask for your lead leading. We ask for your guidance. We ask for your grace. And we ask, Lord, that if there are any here this morning who still don't yet know Jesus, that today would be the day of salvation. So Lord, open our hearts, open our eyes, and uh, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. At the outset, I just want to start by saying that after God redeemed Israel from Egypt, he called them to be a holy nation, right? Exodus 19.6, he redeemed them out of slavery from Egypt and from Pharaoh, and then he called them and he gave them a new purpose and he made them a kingdom of priests, a brand new nation. And uh, as God's covenant people were supposed to be uh, called, they were supposed to be a light to the nations. They were supposed to be a, mag a magnet drawing all the nations to themselves so they, that, that all the nations would know this is the true God. God is the God of Israel. But if you are familiar with your Bible, if you're familiar with the story of Israel, Israel failed in their mission, right? They failed to be the light that they were supposed to be. They failed to be magnetic, right? To draw all the nations to themselves. Rather than upholding righteousness, they sadly broke covenant with God. Rather than being a light to the nations, they became darkened like all the nations that surrounded them. And oftentimes, Scripture even uses vulgar language like, like an unfaithful wife or like a harlot to describe Israel's unfaithfulness, right? Because like an unfaithful wife, Israel turned away from the Lord to serve idols. And in the book of Isaiah, Israel's failure has come to a head. They have totally forsaken God. They have rejected God. They despise God even. Their worship is just empty religion, it's just ritualism, it's just performance. And when you read Isaiah chapters 1 through 5, actually, Isaiah 1 through 5 is a preface. It's the author's preface um, that kind of leads up to chapter 6. In chapters 1 through 5, he tells us, Isaiah tells us, how far they have strayed, how far they have forsaken God. 
And so their worship is just empty religion. Instead of justice, there's murder and there's oppression. Instead of, instead of fidelity, there's infidelity. And as a result, God's judgment is imminent because through the prophet Isaiah, Isaiah is warning them that, hey, foreign invasion is going to come and destruction is going to follow that and then after that, exile. That's what's coming for you because of your unfaithfulness to God. And when you hear a story like that, a true story like that, like the question that I have, the question that we have is what happens? How did this happen? You know, God's chosen people, redeemed, right? Totally redeemed and given a new identity and a new life and community with their God. They had the temple, they had the worship, they had everything and they failed. How did this happen? And the, 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 short, the short answer is they failed because they, at some point in their history, they became disenchanted with God's power and love. They became so disenchanted with his power and love. Isaiah 29, 13 actually sums it up really nicely. He says, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their hearts are far from me. So in other words, it just all became all about outward performance, behavior modification. It became about lip service rather than the heart. Rather than the heart. And when you, when you think about Israel, when you think about their story, the truth of the matter is that we are no different than Israel. Just let, let that sink in. We are no different, right? This story is a familiar story because it's our story. We from time to time, become unfazed by God's power and love in our Christian life. We lose sight of God, right? And if we lose sight of God, we lose sight of who we are. We forget who we are, and then we become self-absorbed and self-focused as a Christian and even as a church. So what's the remedy? What's the remedy for becoming enchanted with God again? What is the remedy? And I wanna, I'm convinced that we need a fresh vision of God's majesty and his gospel. That's what we need. Like, this isn't rocket science. It's not a clever answer. What we need is a fresh vision of God's majesty and his gospel. Over 60 years ago, A.W. Tozer wrote the following warning to the church. Here's what he said. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So necessary to the church is a lofty concept of God that when that concept in any measure declines, the church with her worship and her moral standards declines along with it. The first step down for any church is taken when it surrenders its high opinion of God. So what do we ultimately need as a church to fulfill Christ's mission? According to Isaiah 6, what we need is we need to have a fresh encounter with God through the gospel. We just need to see him. We need to see him. Have fresh eyes to see God for who he is as revealed in the gospel. When you truly get a glimpse of God and his majesty, you're never the same. You're changed forever. And when you get a glimpse of who God is, it changes the way that you relate to God forever. 
It changes everything. So here's the, here's the big idea for this message and for Isaiah 6. When you see how holy God is, you'll truly feel how sinful you are. But, but and this is an important but, but when you experience God's grace, you'll know how loved you are. And when we encounter this majestic vision, it will propel us to go on mission. It will move us. When you're moved by the love of God, it moves you to go out on mission. Um, let me just walk through that, just unpack that one at a time in this passage. So that's the gospel according to the book of Isaiah. First, when you see how holy God is, you'll feel how sinful you are. Look at the passage again, starting in verse 1. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. So we'll stop there. So, Isaiah begins this vision by saying, in the year that King Uzziah died, in verse 1, and King Uzziah is supposed to be a backstory for Isaiah 6. So what's the backstory? So Uzziah ruled as king of Judah for 52 years. He started out when he was 16. So some of you 16-year-olds, that's pretty crazy, right? He started at 16 and at first, Uzziah was a godly leader. Like, the way that he's described in Second Chronicles 36 is he sought the Lord, right? He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just like his father. He restored Israel to her former glory, almost to that of David and Solomon. And he was loved and he was respected by all, even by foreign nations. But sadly, at some point in Uzziah's life, toward the end of his life, the power, all the power just got to his head. And his heart became proud. And kind of the, the, the straw that broke the camel's back is that to his demise, he went into the temple and he burned incense in the temple, which was only designated for the priests. It was forbidden. When the, peace, when the priest came inside the temple and he saw what he was doing, they tried to stop him, but to no avail. And he grew mad. And then God judged him for that, and leprosy broke out in his forehead. And as a result of that, he, according to the Levitical law, Leviticus 13, 46, if you, were, if you had leprosy and it didn't go away, you were pronounced by the priest unclean, unclean, and you had to say that for the rest of your life as a leper, unclean, unclean. And as a result of that, he was excluded from temple worship. He had to live isolated in a house all by himself, till the day he died. So keep that in mind because Uzziah's pride and death symbolize Israel's dark state. So in the year that King Uzziah died, Isaiah goes into the temple 
He is looking for comfort. He is looking for answers. He's looking for consolation. He is mourning over the state of Israel. He's mourning over the, the death or the near death of his king. And he goes into the temple searching for answers and he gets far more than he bargains for. Because he sees the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. So in the Bible, the temple symbolizes heaven. Right? It's the very dwelling place of God. Heaven is God's palace where God dwells. And Isaiah in Isaiah 6 is transported into the very throne room of heaven, the holy of holies, to see the Lord. And you might ask at some point, who is this Lord sitting upon a throne? Who is this King of glory? Well, John chapter 12 tells us explicitly that Isaiah saw Jesus. Isaiah saw the pre-incarnate Son of God. He got a vision of Him. And what we'll see later on is that where there is God the Son, there must be God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. So this is a vision of the tri-personal, triune God that we see. It's no wonder that there is the thrice holy, 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 holy. But I'm getting ahead of myself here. So Isaiah saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. In a moment, Isaiah saw the infinite transcendence of God with his own eyes. Like this isn't just, he's not in a trance. He's not having a dream. He is literally carried up to heaven to behold this. Um, the title Lord, if you notice, it says, I saw the Lord. It's, in, it's uh, capital L and then lowercase O-R-D. So that's Adonai, that's, that means master or it means sovereign one. It's different from, if you look at verse, uh, verse 3, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. Notice that it's in all caps. That's because when, it, when uh, you see in all caps Lord, that's referring to Yahweh, God's sacred covenant name. That's different. Uh, we'll talk about that in a second. But Isaiah saw the Lord this king, this sovereign one, high and lifted up, seated upon a throne with his own eyes. And the throne represents royal authority. So what we're supposed to get from this is that King Uzziah has died, but this king lives forever and ever. We're supposed to feel the contrast of King Uzziah's reign versus this king who sits on the throne. King Uzziah's reign is over, but this king's reign is everlasting. And so what we're supposed to get from this is that there is no greater Lord than the one who sits on the throne. There's no higher throne in the universe than this one. The Lord, notice, is sitting on the throne. I love that. He is sitting on the throne. This is such a great picture of who God is because God is a God who's totally in control. He is totally sovereign. I mean, he's not worried. He's not worried at all about his reign, about his kingdom, like, nothing can thwart his plan. Nothing evades his notice. Like, he is sitting on the throne, and he does whatever he pleases. Like, he is not worried at all. He's never, ever worried or been anxious because he is totally sovereign. He's totally free. Isn't that great about God? It's amazing. 
He's totally in control. He's totally in charge. Uzziah, the king, his sovereignty ended, but this king is supreme over all things. Notice also that the Lord is high and lifted up. High and lifted up. And this just means that he sits enthroned far above and beyond everything. Like, try to wrap your mind around the highness and the majesty of this king. Like, nothing else compares to how high and how lofty and how lifted up this king is because of how exalted he is. God is infinitely transcendent, and that's what we're supposed to see here. He is infinitely transcendent, right? But he is also spatially transcendent. He fills up everything. Like, God is immense. So from top to bottom, and as far as, who knows, eternity. I mean, how do you explain this, right? So look at verse 3. Actually, verse, uh, the, the, end of verse, the end of verse 1, it says that as the, this Lord was sitting upon the throne, high and lifted up, the train of his robe filled the temple. Like, just imagine that. Like, it's just the train of his robe is actually just like the fringe or the hem. Like, the edges, just the edges are filling up the temple. Actually, there's a, uh, the word fill should really be translated kept filling because there's continuous action going on here. So like when the, train is, when the train of his robe is filling the temple, it just like keeps coming down. <laughs> it just keeps coming down and just keeps spreading and spreading and getting bigger and bigger and just overcrowding the universe. Like that's, that's what we're trying to, feel here, what we're trying to see here. Um, Isaiah 66.1, which is at the end of the book, the Lord says this to Isaiah. He says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Okay, just try to wrap your mind around that. Heaven is his throne and the earth It's just an ottoman for him to prop up his legs. Like, this is how immense God is. This is how spatially transcendent he is. He fills up everything, and the entire universe feels overcrowded by his presence and his immensity. This is our God. You see, the entire universe, this is how we're supposed to understand it. The entire universe is God's palace. This is God's palace. And every galaxy is like a chandelier that he's hung in place. Uh, That's a worship song line from Aaron Keyes. The farthest reaches of space is the palace roof. And the farthest reaches of the palace floor and the farthest reaches of, of space from the top to bottom is his palace roof and palace floor. That's an image from John Elias. God's throne towers above and fills up the heavens. Like, here's the universe, the heavens, and the throne is just towering above it. It just overtakes everything. Just the throne. Just the throne. 
The earth is his ottoman. The earth is his footstool. And as Isaiah sees this majesty, he sees something else above the throne. He sees the seraphim, angels, encircling the throne. Now, we, we know at least that there are two seraphim, but there's way more than that. And the image that we're supposed to see, see here is that the seraphim are encircling the throne, maybe a semicircle around the throne. And so you have on one side of the throne myriads and myriads of seraphim, and on the other side of the throne myriads and myriads of, of seraphim. And the reason why um, I make that, um, I think that's why it is, is because of the phrase Lord of hosts in verse 3. Because the Lord of hosts is a military term, which means that the Lord is the God of angel armies. So we're talking about battalions and battalions and battalions, countless battalions of angels surrounding the throne, filling up the entire universe, doing everything at God's bidding, serving the Lord, ministering to the Lord, worshiping the Lord. That's what we're supposed to see here. So he sees the, the seraphim hovering over the throne. Seraphim means burning ones because they must have looked like fire. And I think that they were, they were glowing, they were fiery, not because of any kind of emanation from themselves, but because of who they were in the presence of, right? If God is like the sun, blazing white hot glory, those who are near in proximity to that glory will glow. And so I think that's why they were the burning ones, because they were constantly in the presence of God. I love Psalm, 30, Psalm 34. Um, those who look to him are radiant and their faces will never be ashamed. When you are standing before the presence of a holy God, your face glows from his light and from his presence. And that's what's going on here. Like us, they have a face and two hands and two feet, but here's, where, here's the point of departure. Unlike us, they have six wings. <laughs> Not just two wings, six. Six wings. I mean, just imagine this. So with two wings, they flew, and that's a picture of their readiness to serve God at his request. With two, two wings, they covered their face because even these angels, even though they are sinless, they still feel unworthy to behold the majesty of the one who sits on the throne. And with two wings, they covered their feet because this is supposed to be reminiscent of Exodus 3, right? When God met with Moses in the burning bush, what did the Lord instruct Moses to do? Take off your sandals because you are standing on holy ground, right? So they cover their feet because they know that they are treading on holy ground. But this vision isn't about the angels. This vision is about what they sing. Look at verse 3. They w one called to another and said, Holy, 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 is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Can you just picture this? Can you hear the song of angel armies declaring the holiness, 
the grandeur, the majesty, the greatness of the one who sits upon the throne high and lifts it up and whose robe fills the entire universe. Can you hear them? Can you just catch that? I mean, I'm only one person and I'm failing to describe what is going on here and what, 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 just what it would be like to hear the song of the angels that in one corner of the universe, one is saying, holy, holy, holy. And in another part of the universe, another is saying, the whole earth is full of his glory. And it just keeps going on and on, on and on and on. Like this is the song that they have been singing since they were created. And this is the song that will go on forever and ever and ever. And we, the redeemed, we get to be part of that. We get to be part of that. We get to join them. We get to add our voice to the choirs. Isn't that amazing? So this is like extemporaneous worship, spontaneous worship, bridges that keep going on and on and on. You know, the, the, slides, the slide guy is going to be like, oh, again, we're going to do this again, right? It's my argument for singing tons of bridges. But all kidding aside, this is the constant song of heaven, and this is the point of the whole passage. It's what they say. The point of the whole passage is that God is holy. And what that means, it's actually hard to describe. What that means is that holiness means uniqueness. Meaning this, that God is in a class by himself. There is no one else like God. It's one of the reasons why we name Micah, Micah, the name Micah and Michael mean who is like God. There is no one like God. There is no one like him. He is unrivaled. He is matchless. Uh, one clue that we have as to what holiness means is actually in the, the word Yahweh, the Lord, which is in verse 3, the Lord of hosts in all caps. Yahweh is the sacred covenant name of God, and it actually means self-existence. Uh, there's a, a fancy term for this in theology called the aseity of God, and it comes from the Latin ase, which means by, by himself, basically. God is by himself. God exists from himself. Or maybe another way to explain it better is Exodus 3. When Moses met God at the burning bush and he asked him, what is your name? How did God respond? He said, I am. I am who I am. I will be who I will be. That's holiness. That's what holiness is. Like holiness is just a word that we have invented to try to describe who God is. Holiness also means that God is unapproachable and without sin. He is separate from sin. He is set apart for himself. And uh, probably the best analogy that we, can, we have for that is the sunshine, right? None of us can look at the sun for longer than a couple seconds, and you shouldn't, right? You shouldn't because you will blind. It'll hurt. And if God is the sun of the entire universe, 
no one can stand before the blazing white hot holiness of God. In fact, God is so holy that that's why it's repeated three times in this. Holy, holy, holy. And that's not, that's not, a, that's not the, the angel's stuttering. It's a Hebrew idiom that just basically means this. God is really, really, really holy. That's just what it means. He's really, really, really holy. And maybe we can glean from this is that God is tri-personal. God is triune, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Three in one is holy. Is holy. And maybe the angels have an inside scoop as to that revelation as they're declaring the greatness of God. God's holiness really sums up who he is. He's separate from all of creation. And so one of the ways that uh, a lot of theologians and scholars describe God's holiness is that before God created, his holiness was hidden. In other words, it was hidden from everything except himself because God is the only one who has existed from eternity. But when God created the universe, that's when he put his holiness on display. And that's, the, that's the, actually the relationship between his holiness and his glory in verse 3. You see, that is why every square inch of the universe reverberates with his glory. In other words, he created not because he needed anything, not because he was lonely. He created because he wanted to show his holiness off. He wanted to show how glorious he is. That's why he created, that's why he created us. That's why he created the angels. He wanted to show how awesome and how beautiful he is. That's the relationship between holiness and glory. It's the dramatic display of his fame spread throughout the entire universe. Holiness also means, uh, actually glory also means weight. Uh, there's like a certain weight to all of us. All of us have a certain measure of self-importance. That's how God made us. And so uh, the more important you are, the more famous you are, the more well-known you are. I actually looked up uh, who are some of the most famous people. And some of the people that came up were Jeff Bezos, Amazon, uh, Elon Musk, Tesla, Joe Biden, uh, and then some other people. I didn't even know who, who they were. But why are these people, why are these the famous people of the world? According to a global survey, why? Because of the measure of their self-importance because of what they accomplished, because of who they are. And the, the fact of the matter is, is that no one is more important than the God of the universe. No one. Because all these people, they may be important and famous right now, but one day they're going to die, and people are going to be like, Jeff who? Joe who? Elon who? What? But the name that will be permeated throughout the entire universe will be the name that is above every name, Jesus Christ. So the angels respond, and now even the temple responds. Look at verse 4. The foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called, and the house was filled with smoke. So while the angels sing heaven's song, the entire universe quakes like everything is bursting at the seams, and the foundations of the, of the temple shake, the, 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 the temple responds, the doors come out of their sockets, the entire house was filled with smoke. What does this all mean? So it's actually supposed to be reminiscent of Exodus 19. When God met with Israel at Mount Sinai, 
with thunder and lightning, and then there is a cloud of smoke. And that's all supposed to mean God is here right now. God has come. And because of the smoke, the smoke was supposed to be an indicator to the priest later on, don't go near. Because if you go near, you're going to die. That's what that meant. It means God is here. He is in the Holy of Holies. If you come near, you'll die. So the angels respond, the temple responds, and now Isaiah responds. And he is shaken just like the temple to his core. Look at verse 5. He says, Woe is me, for I am lost. I'm a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. You see, holiness forces us to see that in and of ourselves we are condemned. None of us can stand before the holiness of God. That's why he cried, woe is me. It's a, it's a cry of curse. He realized that he was cursed. I am cursed. Or really he's saying, I mean the translation is weak here, I am damned. That's what he's saying. He realizes that he is screwed. Holiness also disintegrates us from the inside out. And that's why he says, it's translated, I am lost, but it's a better, a better translation is, I am undone. Like, holiness unravels you. Holiness disintegrates you from the inside out. Like the sun sizzles you and melts you away if you get too close to it. That's what holiness done. And so he's just like, I am undone. Holiness also reveals how unclean we are personally and how unclean we are as a community. Right? So this is crazy because Isaiah was actually a righteous man. He sought the Lord. He was an upstanding prophet. He, uh, he had favor in the eyes of the people. He had favor before God, but he, he realizes something about himself that maybe he didn't see before, how unclean he was. Because in this moment, if you remember King Uzziah, he's using the same language of Uzziah, the leper's cry. He realizes that he, his pronouncement is unclean, unclean. He is no different than King Uzziah. He is no different than Israel, who has rejected God and despised him. That's what he's saying, essentially. He realizes that he's just as unclean. And so are we. How is this? Well, the clue that we have is in the word lips. You see that in verse, verse 5? He says, I, I'm a man of unclean lips. I dwell in the midst of, un, of a people of unclean lips. So this lips is actually supposed to represent, in Scripture, it's a symbol of the heart. And so I'm going to get some help from Jesus here because this is what Jesus says. Here's the relationship between our mouths and the heart. Jesus says in Matthew 15, 18 to 20, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. And so none of us can say, none of us can say that we are good before the eyes of God. 
Like, all of us have fallen short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. Our evil thoughts, our anger, our lust, our lies, our pride, our selfishness, our self-serving spirits, it all condemns us before a holy God. And that's what we're supposed to feel when we read this. And even your best works are just filthy rags before a holy God. And that's why we deserve the sentence of death. That's the end of point number one. When you see how holy God is, you'll feel how sinful you are. And here's point number two. But when you experience God's grace, you'll know how loved you are. Look at verses six to seven. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. So Isaiah 6, 5 is kind of like a cliffhanger, right? It kind of leaves us wondering, is there any hope? Is there any hope? In and of ourselves, all of us face, face God's wrathful judgment, but all of a sudden, something amazing happens in the throne room of heaven. Because one of the seraphim took a burning coal with tongs from the altar. Even the angel could not handle the heat of the burning coal. He had to use tongs. And he brought it to Isaiah. And what is the meaning of this? The burning coal is supposed to represent God's wrath. And the fire from the altar is supposed to represent God's grace. So somehow these two ideas are brought together in this moment. When the burning coal touched Isaiah's mouth, a great exchange took place. You see, he deserved to be struck with God's wrath, but instead he was touched by God's grace in a moment. I mean, listen, listen to the assurance of pardon. This has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin is atoned for. Forgiven. Accepted. Reconciled to God. In a moment. It's amazing. How can this be? How can this be? And the simple answer is that it's because of Jesus. It's because of Jesus. Jesus is the Holy One of Israel. Jesus is Isaiah's greater prophet who traded places with us at the cross. You see, Jesus at the cross absorbed God's wrath in himself so that we might be washed forever in his grace. At the cross, Jesus took our guilt upon himself as if it was his and credited his perfect life onto our account as if it was ours to begin with. Jesus at the cross was rejected by his Father so that we might be reconciled to God. The holiness of God is also, the God of holiness is also the God of grace and the person and work of Jesus Christ. Amen? There's nothing that we can do to deserve his grace. Isaiah does nothing, right? He does nothing. God does everything. And here's the good news of the gospel is that if you confess your sins, if you repent and turn to Jesus, you can be forgiven and loved forever and ever. 
And the good news, that's good news not just for unbelievers, but it's good news for Christians, right? How many times do we sin? Again and again and again. How many times will God take you back? Every time, because of what Jesus did for you. Every time. So what's the result? This is point number three. When we encounter God's holiness and God's grace in this way, it propels us to go out on mission. Look at verses 8 to 13. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? Then I said, Here am I. Send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but don't understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy. Blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitant, houses without people, the land is a desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away. And the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. So all of a sudden, the angels stop singing. Now God speaks directly to Isaiah for the first time, and God says, who shall I send? Who will go for us? The angels act as witnesses in a courtroom drama, and they wait in silence, and all of a sudden, Isaiah breaks the silence, and he says, here I am, Lord. I will go. You see, those who are changed by the gospel cannot help but share the gospel. They cannot help Those who are moved by the gospel cannot help but go out with the gospel. You see, when holiness breaks you and grace grace revives you, you'll do anything for God. (laughs) You'll be like, here I am, Lord. I'll do anything for you because of what you did for me. And this is actually the high point of Isaiah's vision. But this is where it de-escalates from here. Why? Because... Isaiah is called to preach to hard-hearted people who won't listen. Can you imagine? Can you imagine if that's what the Lord told you what was going to happen? If you're like, all right, here I am, Lord, send me. And all of a sudden, God is like, yeah, go ahead, preach to a people that that are never going to listen to you. Whew, man, what a downer, right? What a downer. But this is what Isaiah was commissioned with. Israel rejects God and Isaiah's message because he has hardened their hearts. And this is also true. Israel's heart is hard because they choose to serve idols rather than God. So in this passage, God's sovereignty and his human response and human responsibility are at play here. We can't get around it. So on, and on the one side of the coin, God is hardening their hearts. On the other side of the coin, Israel is choosing the path that they want. Both are taking place at the same time. But there's something else going on here that I I want you to see that's really important. And it has to do with the words in uh, verse, verse 10. Ears, eyes, and hearts. And then it says it again in, uh, yeah, sorry, in verse 9. It says, keep on hearing, so that's the ears. Keep on seeing, that's the eyes. And then the heart, and then he says it again backwards in the middle of verse 10. He says, eyes, ears, and hearts. Now, the, what's the significance of that? The significance of that is that 
just as an idol can't see, and just as idols can't feel, and just as idols can't hear, Israel can't either. And that's what idolatry does. When you worship idols, you become like them. And so Israel has become just as hard of hearing as the idols that they worship, just as blind as the idols that they worship, just as unfeeling as the idols that they worship. And that is the judgment. That's the judgment. And so that's why Isaiah says, how long, O Lord? How long is this going to go on? Well, the the semi-good news is that the judgment is temporary, but the rest of the bad news is this, is that the judgment includes invasion from Assyria, destruction will follow that, and exile after that. And everything up until this point in Isaiah's mission seems really dark and hopeless, but there is a glimmer of hope, and this is at the end in verse 13. All the hope hinges on the line, the holy seed is its stump, and actually has a, a twofold meaning. And the first meaning is this, that even though there's going to be destruction, even though there's going to be invasion and exile, God is going to preserve for himself a holy remnant, right? A people for himself that he's going to rescue and he's going to save. And this remnant is going to be like an oak tree that is cut down or like a terebinth. And what's, what's significant about these trees is that they have the ability to spring forth again, these two, these two type of trees, So this remnant is going to spring forth again. It's going to have new life. But here's the second meaning, and I think this is the most important meaning of this holy seed, is that the holy seed is the stump of Jesse from which comes our Messiah. And that's Isaiah 11, right? How how is the Messiah described as one coming from the stump of Jesse, the root of David, right? The very one who would destroy the serpent, this is what Isaiah is talking about, and this is the hope indeed. What Isaiah is trying to say is, is that Jesus is the Messiah who would actually come to heal the blind, heal the deaf, and soften our hearts so that we would actually be able to see, hear, and feel and have new hearts again. Jesus is the Messiah who would be pierced through for our transgressions. He is the Messiah who will one day gather a remnant of peoples, not just Israel, but all nations to himself. And that's why at the end, before Jesus goes to heaven, he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, make disciples of all nations. He's calling each of us. And the question still remains, who will go for me? Who will go? Let's pray. Lord, we just want to take a couple moments this morning to reflect on everything that we've heard. It's, uh, it's rich, it's, uh, it's a lot to reflect on. But Lord, right now, we just want to take a moment to be still and know that you are God. We want to take a moment to respond to all that you are, to all that you've done for us in the person of Jesus. And so Lord, I pray that you would in this time, quiet our hearts as we get ready to sing and to respond to all, to all that you are. So let's take a couple moments, church, and just be still and know that, you, that, that he is God. Let's take a couple moments to quiet our hearts before his majesty, before his presence. And let's ask God to show up. Let's ask God to come and reveal 
the sin in our lives that we need to confess and that we need to repent of. Let's ask God to show us his amazing grace again and give us new life. And let's ask God to give us boldness to go and make disciples of all nations. Let's take a couple moments and just quiet our hearts before the Lord. Thank you for joining us today. We hope you were able to seek, savor, and share the all-surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to find out more about our church, submit a prayer request, watch previous sermons, go to www.waterbrook.church. Have a blessed week.